This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, we sit down with Wake Forest head coach Bobby Muse. He discusses the challenges of recruiting internationally and the benefits of combining cultures, how the roll-on, roll-off sub-rule in NCAA football affects tactical decision-making, and what makes the top players such as Leeds' Jack Harrison progress into the elite ranks. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please recommend it to family and friend as we want to continue to grow our audience. I hope you enjoy. Perfect. Good to go. So, Bobby, first of all, thanks very much for jumping on on kind of an early, um, early morning start for you. Um, how are things? I know briefly off air we mentioned um, it's kind of just come to the end of your season now. Um, yeah, how are things your end? Things are great. First off, thanks for having me. I, I think things are great. We're just trying to play a little catch up right now. Um, it's been a long year, a little bit of a different college season than we're used to, an exciting college season. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy the way the group came together. You know, we have basically two teams, one in the fall and one in the spring. With, with some similarities and some similar personalities and players, but it was uh, basically just creating a new team. So now taking a deep breath, reflecting, getting ready now for the next season that comes, our guys come back already in July. So got about a month and a half off to, to try to prepare for their return. And in the meantime, you know, we have some camps and some ID camps that we're getting ready for, trying to get the recruits that have been committed here and through NCAA eligibility and, you know, visas with some international kids. So there's, ne- there's never a dull day in college soccer. So we're just trying to reflect on the fall and seeing how we can get better moving forward for the, sorry, reflect on the spring, which feels like the fall and get ready for uh, for the fall. I'm probably a scatterbrain with times and dates like everybody else in the world sitting in a room and not knowing what day it is. But uh, we're, we're trying to to get ready to see how we can get better from the spring to the fall. Perfect. So for people that don't know you or don't know your background, you just want to talk about kind of what your role is now and I guess some of the mini highlights or highlights you've had along the way to get where you are. Yeah, that's a well, that's it's an interesting one. Well, I you know, like any, you know, young footballer, you know what I mean, or soccer player here in the US is I played from age four, you know, sounds like probably yourself, right? And I, I you know, I think growing up knowing <clears throat> In the U.S. when I grew up, right, I'm 45 now, the league wasn't assembled, right? And uh, so there was, I played, I played it because I loved it, you know, and as close as I got to, as I was getting older to professional football was like the EPL review show on Monday nights or Monday mornings, you know, with a little review and you get to see highlights and, you know, um, but as you get older, you get more ambitious. I went to university in the United States. I went to a place called Southern Connecticut State University in New Haven, Connecticut. Um, and we have different categories here in the U.S. It's Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three, um, NAIA Junior College. Um, Southern was a Division Two program, but it was a Division Two powerhouse, um, national championship contender each and every year. And fortunate, you know, to have the opportunity uh, to go there. I played there for three years. I was a reserve. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of that because I think it makes me the the coach and the man I am today. I think it's gives me a little bit of empathy and understanding for what guys go through if they're not playing immediately. Um, but did that for three years. I had back surgery as a junior in college. 
And my coach that year left to take a new job at the University of Connecticut, which is a Division One school. Um, and uh, he asked me to continue my degree and start my coaching, you know, um, career. I guess I didn't think it was going to be a career at that point, but just to continue my degree and coach at the same time since I wasn't going to play. And uh, I I took him up on the opportunity, and I graduated from the University of Connecticut, continued to coach there. Uh, for a few more years. And fortunately, we won the national championship in, in 2000. So uh, we went from basically not making an NCAA tournament in four years to coach the staff, the players to reaching two final fours and win a national championship. With that being said is now I think this could be a career for me in college athletics. And I got a call from Coach Vidovich. Uh, he was the head coach here at Wake Forest. And we're in North Carolina. And um, we're in the conference called the, you know, the Atlantic Coast Conference, which hands down, in, in my opinion, I think in many others is the best soccer conference in the country. And I got offered the assistant job here and was here for six years. And, and you grind in college athletics. You know, it's not like a I'm the I'm the assistant at Liverpool. You know what I mean? Where, you know, you, you, know, uh, you grind and, you know, you coach youth kids and, and you come along and there's a lot of recruiting involved. We travel a lot to try to lure kids to come to your institution. And then I was here for six years. We went to a final four, which was great. Um, and I got offered the University of Denver head coaching position. So myself, my family moved to Denver, never been to Denver before and tried to build a new, basically not a new program that's been there, but trying to make it an established program. And I was there for eight years. Uh, we had some success. We, we went to the, we went to four NCAA tournaments for the first time in, in, in school's history, division one at that point. And then the job opened here back at Wake Forest and I uh, was able to come back. So the highlight of my coaching career, not just wins, was the opportunity to come back to Wake Forest, where I spent a long time as an assistant um, to be a head coach of one of the top programs in America and in the ACC was uh, was something that I, I still have to pinch myself that I have the opportunity to do each and every day. Um, and since being back in six years, we, we've, we've had some success. We won two ACC tournament championships, which is, I tell people, I do believe it's it's harder to win than the NCAA championship because you have to beat the top four teams basically in the country to do it. <laughs> um, so, but it was our first ACC championship in 27 years. So in terms of like a, an individual, like championship accolade, that's definitely the 2016. And to do it again in 17 has been pretty incredible. And we've been to two college cups, which is our final four here in college soccer. So it's been a it's been a journey. It's been a ride. But, um, you know, I'm blessed to be back at Wake Forest and I love what I do. You know, obviously we get to compete. And I, I brought up championships, but we're developing young men. And I think that's the best thing about university, you know, partnering with athletics. Perfect. So obviously loads of really good bits in there. And I've been making notes as uh, <laughs> talking so we can things to discuss. I guess the the easiest point to start with and kind of most recent is um for you as a program, you as an individual, what is the identity of Wake Forest? What do you guys stand for? What's your philosophy of, I guess, the people that you want and how the game should be played? That's a that's a that's all over the map, right? I mean, I just think I, I think coaching cliche, and if you're coaching a, a pro team, you're coaching a university team, a club. I, I think everybody's going to say they want men of character, right? I mean, everybody wants men of character. That's hard, right? I think the hardest part for us is what's great about our job is we're allowed to hand select throughout the country and the world with our recruiting process. 
And we try to do all we can to get to know who the individual is. And we want people of high character and high integrity, more importantly, great work ethic. Because to go to university at a top 25 institution academically in the country and to compete the way we do athletically, it does take a special human being. Because it's not, you know, you can't um, not be hardworking in the classroom and expect to be the hardest working player on the field. So we, we definitely say they tie together. Right. So you, you work hard at both. So that that eliminates a big portion. You know what I mean? When you look at the academic piece. So they have to be academically inclined. The things that we say is we look for three things. Um, we want someone that wants to get a degree from one of the best institutions in the country. They want to win a national championship. That's ultimately that's what our goal is each and every each and every year. And they want to develop as people both on and off the field. And if they have those three things and they're really bought into that, this could be a place for them. The problem is young kids really, you don't know what their true character is until adversity hits. You know what I mean? And I think we see, we learn a lot about people, including myself, um, when true athletic adversity hits, not even life adversity, like what type of person you are if you're not going to play. So that's part, those are the challenges that we endure. On the field, um, I, I use the, the saying, we want to be a, a blue collar team defensively and a little bit more of a white collar team with the ball. White collar meaning is, we're a possession-based team. You know what I mean? We want to have majority of possession. Uh, and more importantly, we want to have possession in the attacking half. And like any coach right now, we want to be an exciting, high-tempo, fast-paced, really attractive attacking style play. Uh, I know that's super cliche, but it's something actually we take great pride in. And I think is the one thing that we have a true identity in the United States in terms of um, college soccer, of we play, the game looks attractive. And it's something that we take great pride in. You know what I mean? Being a possession, we build out of the back, um, up a goal, down a goal. It's something we take great pride in. And yes, we can manage manage the game and kick it out of bounds at the end of the game, like some teams as well. Um, but at the same time, is we are known for our brand and the identity, and um, we're known for generating professional footballers because of the brand and the identity that we play. I think to transition from our brand into professional leagues here in the United States. And, and obviously we've been fortunate to have a couple of guys move on and play in Europe as well has definitely helped the transition. So it gives you a little bit of the background all the way across the board from academics to football. Perfect. So linking through to what you mentioned first there around the character piece and how important that is, um, particularly in the work ethic, obviously in the recruiting process, um, you're going to be spending time obviously trying to get to know the the boys and their families and background information how do you go about trying to decipher information or gather information around that character piece and making sure it fits in with um what you guys would want and so there's a good fit between the two parties you know it's it's, it's evolving it's evolving because there's a little bit more international recruiting taking place in universities why is that I mean, we talked a little bit earlier before we, we started recording is there's a lot of players in the United States that are making the jump to sign professional contracts. So, you know, as a college coach and a lot of college coaches, now they look into the international recruiting ranks saying, okay, you know, we were talking earlier, it's like young footballers, <clears throat> they're not going to sign professional contracts, but they want to continue to play. And now they want to get their education. The United States is a really good place for that. So now you're going to Europe and you're looking at kids that have chased the dream already you know, in, in now in America, they're still chasing it. So we're like almost switching roles, right? So um, <clears throat> there's a little bit more international recruiting, which it's harder to really get to know someone. 
you know, you get to know them personally through FaceTime or visits or travel. Um, but the background is a little bit more difficult, right? You know, it's like we don't have the relationships with, you know, um, the, you know, the schools at that, you know what I mean, that point or calling teachers or guidance counselors that we have in the U.S. or even their club coaches. So it becomes a little bit more challenging. But here in the U.S. is, you know, we have camps here. Kids come, you get to be around them, you get to coach them a little bit, you're hands on. You know, the high schools they go to, you build relationships with if it's high school coaches or high school guidance counselors, their local clubs is huge in terms of if it's an MLS youth club, you build relationships and you just get to know and we get to see them. Right. So like it's rare that we see a kid once make a decision, bring them in. You see them and you see them win. You see them lose. You see them compete. You see their interactions with their coach. You see their interactions with their teammates when things are going well and when things aren't going so great. And then you try to make that decision. Um, the other thing is, is like you see a lot of potential in some kids. And based off the culture of your program currently, can you take a risk on a kid that, you know, has he's, he wants to be a good kid? He competes, but he just doesn't know how to channel it, challenge it. And he needs some leadership and he needs some guidance. Um, I'm a second chance kid as well. You know what I mean? I was I was a little bit of like my competitiveness was one of my greatest qualities. Uh, but it actually held me back sometimes too. So I have a little bit of time for those type of people. Um, so just really learning what drives them. Uh, I'm very honest with our kids in the recruiting process that it's not going to be easy and I'm going to be all over them. I'm a very meticulous guy that um, holds guys accountable. I don't turn a blind eye if you're talented or not and just trying to be forthcoming. And I think at least they have, they hear what it's going to be like before they get here. When they're here, that's a whole different story, right? Because they, they hear what they want to hear a lot of times. Um, but just really just letting them know and being transparent, honest, building relationships. Um, but it's, it's, it's continuing to evolve, right? I'm not getting any younger. I could tell you that. So the connection between, you know, 17 to 22, 17 to 23 year olds, you know, you have to continue to find new ways um, to pull those layers back of that onion. And do you see differences culturally between the the guys in the States that you're trying to recruit compared to the European base players that you're trying to recruit? And then how does that look character wise in terms of if they're different culturally, obviously you're looking for different identifiers for that character that will fit into your program? Yeah. I think that's continuing to evolve as well because I would normally say the international player is more mature. Some of them have been out of their house for years, right, in their academy clubs and they moved, you know, um, and where they've been competing for a job for years, right? So I, there's a certain type of professionalism that comes with that, right? Um, the American kids are starting to change where they're starting to compete for jobs and they want to be, they have aspirations for professional footballers, but a lot of them, and we have residency programs, but a lot of them are still at home. You know what I mean? A lot of them are being told how great they are. Um, and, 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 you know, I see your smile. You make me laugh. It, it, it is, it's the truth. And, and so you see the majority is you see maturity differences and the fighting and the competitive. The other thing is the European, Europeans bring and the internationals as Europeans, but internationally we South America as well. You know, it doesn't matter where they come from. They bring the experience of maybe being released already and this being their last chance to make it. So there's a, a certain determination when they come here, maybe comparative to the American kid. 
Um, but we're starting to see that change. We're getting more and more mature guys that are coming from professional environments here in the U.S., which is great to see as a football fan um, that we are developing competitive players both on and off the field. But there is a, a age. Normally, the international kid that comes over um, is is slightly older and brings a little bit more of um, maybe the experiences of maybe it not being always easy, you know, where it, it, they've had some challenges along the way. And depending on the country, you know, there's different, you know, I mean, there's German kids in college, you know what I mean, seem to be older. I mean, there's Israelis that, that have gone through the Israeli militia and then come to college, right? And they get that, that leeway with the with the military. Um, so you're getting a wealth of experience in so many different aspects, um, culturally and professionally. And how does that affect you as a program? Because I look at someone like the San Antonio Spurs, for example, and they're well known for integrating individuals from all different parts of the world. Yeah. And Greg Popovich is really big on, you know, educating one another. So I, I read a, um article about Paddy, Paddy Mills and the way that he was telling people about his uh, Aboriginal background, etc., for you guys, how is that kind of cross-section of society? How does that affect you as a program? Um, and is there any particular benefits you think by having that melting pot that helps you guys as, as a program? Oh, I think even you take out even the international piece of it. If you looked at just even my program alone, we're, we're a majority American-based program, but we're a melting pot. We have kids from California. We have kids from New York City, you know, Florida, Atlanta, all different. You know, it could be religious backgrounds, financial backgrounds, academic backgrounds. Um, so, again, is the more diverse your team is, I think the more educational for life there is for the individuals in the program with the international piece is they bring in so many different experiences. You know, we have a goalkeeper from the Barcelona that played in Champions League in Barcelona and he comes in. And he's actually excited about what we have here. And a young American kid's looking at him like, you played at Barcelona and this is good. You know what I mean? And it just inspires them even more. But when, when you look at it, I, I said I played at Southern Connecticut. We were a very international group. And the educational culturally that I got where I'm, I'm a kid from New York, Long Island, and I just know New York, Long Island type stuff. And I'm playing with a kid from Bermuda, I'm, you know, um, guys from Israel, guys from the Caribbean, Cape Verde. I mean, like everywhere in the world and just culturally, the connection and the bonds that we had is something that probably makes me who I am today. You know, when you realize how lucky you are to have the opportunities that you have, you know, just learning from different places and different people. And I think I think the diversity of your program, it does not always have to be race or fi like academic diversity, financial diversity, um, where that's where people learn when they're outside their comfort zone and seeing people that, you know, they, they didn't even know existed, you know, and seeing different cultures across the world. It was unbelievable. We took a trip, not to sidetrack, with our team to Spain. And you talk, it, it was a football trip, right? But it was a cultural experience for kids that, maybe had never gone or flown internationally, you know what I mean? Or you have a South American that's going to Europe. Um, but we had uh, very fortunate. Uh, we have a young man, John Pacero played with us. He won the national player of the year, the year, the year after we went on this trip, his dad is legendary. Jose Marie Pacero played for Barcelona, you know, captain them to a champions league um, title, which is, this is an icon in European football, right? In Barcelona, but to go over and experience the culture and spend time with him and, 
you know what I mean? Going through Barcelona is something that I'll never forget because we're bringing just a different group. You know? So you think about that. We went there. It would be the same thing as when you bring an international guy here, use your experience and your culture to better your, your program. Uh, it, it, it's a win-win for everybody. And was there anything in particular during that trip that was kind of a, I guess like a learning moment for the entire group where they were like, Oh, that's, really different or oh actually i hadn't even considered that that way of life or anything like that i don't know if it was that I, from a football perspective you know when you're out there and you're competing we we, we were fortunate we played um the real madrid 19s now you got to realize in college there's a the, the, we have a slew of ages right depending on you know it could be a red shirt kid and you have an older guy and we're from 17 to 18 now at that time 18 to 20 18 to 21 so we're a little bit older, you know, maybe a little bit more physically developed because the 19s, probably 17s, they have some 16s up and we're playing at their facility and we win. And I think the the light went on of like, hey, we're not that bad. I'm not talking about as a program. We know that. But collectively, you know what I mean? University and American football has come a long way. Um, and I, 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 I do. I think they go hand in hand that that. That European trip that we went, we went to Barcelona and we went to Madrid. Uh, we came home and won the ACC championship that year for the first time in 27 years and went to a college cup. I, I don't think that was by coincidence. I think the experience that we had just to bond collectively um, on that trip and then three months later come back and compete for a national championship. I, I do think they go hand in hand. And does it present any challenges in terms of like the culturally how people brought up on football because I remember watching an interview a few years ago with um, Thierry Henry and Jamie Carragher on here on Sky Sports and I think they were talking about David Luiz about uh, Carragher didn't want him to dribble out from the back and Thierry Henry said well no that's what we teach our players to do because if he takes a few players out uh, deeper in the pitch it creates me more space higher up the pitch and that was like a real cultural a mm -hmm. debate really in terms of how it's done in France and how it's done in England. With you guys who you're getting a lot of people from all different parts of America, which is going to be culturally very different and yeah. obviously internationally, I imagine they're going to have different experiences and different thoughts of how football should be played or ideas of what is or isn't right. Does that present you with any challenges on a practical level? It, it does early on. Right. Because it could be system change. It could be, you know, just pure identity from player profiles. I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a right wing back and I played this way with my team. We try to recruit kids for the system. Right. But even its system, it could be presented. There's there's tweaks and maybe our central midfield rotation defensively or with the ball, you know, in the way we build and the way we want to use numerical advantages all, all over the park. You get a lot of that at the beginning. But then it, it, I think it's not a struggle, but when you can explain the whys to them, right, and then they see it succeed, or hopefully they have individual and we have collective success doing it, then that buy-in is faster, right? It's hard to bring a kid in from, you know, you, you, New York FC is a really good example is like they build all the time out of the back, you know, and we're asking for maybe not directness. I don't like to use directness. Directness with a purpose is... You know, I think you can open the game up with some bigger diagonal balls. I told you I'm a Liverpool fan. And I mean, outside backs are hitting diagonal balls to outside backs. I mean, like the best teams in the world are hitting diagonal balls. So, yeah, but, well, but doesn't work anymore. This is the way we want to do it, you know, and they realize, OK, well, I understand the reasons why. So I think earlier in their career, 
it's not like this because you're talking about your philosophy the way you want to play in the recruiting process and they watch a lot of your games coming in I mean, the benefit now of everything being streamed i mean everything being streamed all college games youth games there's no excuse for a young player even internationally to say they don't know how you play you know what i mean or what you expect so i think that's less and less now what we try to do in the recruiting process you get a little bit of it at the beginning but the buy-in is important for us to be successful when you're going to have an identity you know what i mean and a structure of how you want to play and could, do you send them games or footage of people within their positions of what you yeah. see them being like? Yeah, and I think, you know, um, it's a challenge for any young player, right? Because I think it, I, I always ask players that maybe go off on their own little tangents. I said, please tell me who, who you replicate. Like, who do you want to replicate your game off of? Because I watch a lot of football and I've never seen a player play like you, <laughs> you know what I mean? Not in a good way. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not like where they do everything off of 15 touches. You know what I mean? What's the best players in the world who is taking that many touches or who, who plays like that. But we have a lot of guys that now with the game being so big, even in our country, they're emulating different players and, you know, and this is their influence. And, you know, with all the, the video systems that are out there, if you came to me and said, Hey coach, can you send me three right backs Right. And we sit down and watch video of some of the best right backs in the world, you know, and looking at little intricacies that they're doing in the game that we feel benefit this player. Um, and we do a lot of individual meetings. I mean, we meet with every one of our players weekly to go over their video from the week, um, you know, and just saying, what do you think we can do here? Small group meetings. What do you think we can do here? Um, so, yes, we're trying to emulate other teams, you know, or like quarantine when we were all shut down here in the U S is I gave games. I'm trying to even think the games that we gave, but we're watching. Um, if you're watching Byron, you know, Hey guys, I want everybody to watch Byron and I want you to come up with clips that impress you the way they pressed. You know what I mean? What, what were some of the um, opportunities to break or expose them in the press to get them thinking? And then how does it relate to what we do and how we do it? And then going over different teams that play different systems or a city, if it's Chelsea, um, just different systems of play just to try to get some feedback from them to see the way they see the game as well and then compare it with the player. So we do it individually and collectively. And would you do it for recruiting as well? So would you send clips to a recruit and say, you, like, I can see you're a nine. This is the type of nine I imagine you being with these types of runs. This is how it would fit into our system. Not as much in comparison because, it, it, again, is that's a hard one, right? You, 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 <laughs> I, I take it. I take a step back as I say that is like, well, yeah, I see you playing like Henri. Well, I don't know if that's respectful to Henri if I see you bringing a college player and you compare him to a pro. Um, but with that being said, is I do think it's a lot of conversation and it's a lot of, did you watch the way when we played on Saturday, did you see, you know, what so-and-so was doing or player X was doing, or what was our nine doing? What was our six doing? That's something that you need to work on in your game to be a little bit more successful. When you get here, we definitely do those type of comparisons, but I also, I'm very cautious, even in, in this, in this team is if we have someone plays in the two and then, um, you know, we have different substitution rules, right? So we can, sub, you know, uh, play multiple guys. I, I want guys to play like themselves and not try to be other players. And I think you see that a little bit more in your own program, you know, uh, where 
we have a, a center back that's an athletic, you know, more destroyer type center back. And then you have a center back that's a schemer and a builder, right? And a connector. And then, you know, this one comes on and he's, he's the athletic one trying to be the schemer and the builder and the builder's trying to be the athletic. I just want them to be themselves within the system. And I think when you say, did you see what so and I, I just, I got, I got to be careful of comparing players to players. It's more of the positional needs and the structural needs that we need to see a little bit more. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. I think it's a really interesting point as well. It's like each player's got their USP or or what they're good at. And actually, as a coach, you're trying to fit all of those USPs together to get a good team. And if yeah. two or three of them start trying to freelance in a different way, actually the whole system could break down. So I think that's a really interesting perspective. Just linking to what you said there around the substitution um, <laughs> rules and whatnot, which is obviously kind of rolling, rolling subs, if you like. How yeah. does that challenge you as a coach? Because I imagine it does allow you a little bit of flexibility in terms of changing formation or changing within within a game because of obviously what the other team are doing, et cetera. Yeah. But obviously it, it is also very busy in terms of other things going on in your head and stuff. So what benefits have you found from that rule and how does that challenge you as a coach maybe compared to the more traditional of like three subs over 90 minutes? Yeah, I, it, you have you put it this way. If I played one game with subs and then one game, you know, with no reentry, and we did three, I think your mentality completely changes. The way you see the game, the way you have to play the game, the way you manage the game, hundred percent. You know, um, with you know our substitution rule is no reentry in the first half, and this, you know, for for a UK listener, this is going to be hard to understand, and then dual reentry in the second half. Um, so you can come out, go back in. If you come out again, then you're done for the game. Uh, you don't have to do a lot of thinking with that. You know what I mean? Like you, you basically you have freedom. Um, with that being said, what's the why's? Why do we have that? Um, I love it as I listen to managers all across the world complaining about the current system and how many games they're playing. Um, and for us, the normal college soccer season is from, August until December, if you're, you know, you make it all the way through. And most of the time we have two games a week, you'd look at it as three. So our schedule is Tuesday, Friday, depending on TV schedule, because we could be playing Saturday and they can move you to Friday because the TV wants you on. Um, so if it's Tuesday, Friday, that's, that's a tough one. So that's where the reentry and the substitution rule is a benefit. We want to play a high tempo game. We like to press. Um, so for instance, is if, if, if we have substitutions, you can do that. And our depth has allowed us to rotate players to keep them fresh, not only within the game, but throughout the season. And now if we didn't have reentry, I would have to maybe, I don't know if we press the entire time. We would have to pick and choose when we press and what were the triggers of our press and what line is it a high block, mid block, low block based on the opponent because of the reentry situation. So it allows us to do different things for sure. Um, different players bring different attributes. You know, you can have a nine that is really good at pressing where we can really set it. And then you bring someone else in, maybe it changes a little bit. But the freshness, um, if you watch our games throughout the years, uh, we score more goals in the second half than we do the first half because we wear teams down with our possession and our press. Um, but we use the substitution rule and the college substitution rule to the best of our advantage because of our depth and, and, and the tempo at which we want to play on both sides of the ball. But certainly there's a lot less thinking involved in that. 
Uh, and, I, and I'm very honest with that in terms of if I only had three subs and there's no reentry, there's a lot more tactical perspective that we have to take in that, you know, uh, in terms of what we're doing and how we're doing it. And do you have like GPS units and stuff to track distances and workloads? Yeah. And do you normally look for thresholds to then look change or is it more of a feel as, as to how the game's going? That's a really good question. I think the way we've managed our loads and our GPS is through the week, knowing that if we do a good job hitting our loads and hitting our marks and what we want to do in terms of our freshness going into the competition, we don't have to monitor the load in the competition knowing that we did a good enough job where we feel they're going to be healthy and safe to get go through 90 if we need. Um, so it, using the week plan, you know what I mean, uh, to get to the game, we just obviously COVID hit us where we only played one game a week, which was from a college soccer and, and, and a soccer coach, football coach's perspective. This is normal. This is unbelievable. Uh, where we had a week long, you have to be careful when you used to be in mostly regen, regen, because you, you play two games a week where you can overdo it in training. So that's why GPS was very, very valuable for us this spring where it's one game a week. We're like, hey, we can train, but you got to watch your training. So you're, you're at peak performance on the weekend. So we're using that GPS, our training loads, and you know, our readiness and stuff for the preparation for the game. where We don't have to in-game manage GPS loads as much. And within the games, do you look at like positional and formational flexibility? So say, for example, you're playing against a team and you're expecting them to go to a 4-3-3, but they've come out in a 4-4-2. Would that be something that you would quickly adapt to and put a player on to change to whatever formation you needed to? Um, or is it more of a you have your identity and a way of playing, you try and maintain that as much as possible and then just kind of, make the subs and the rotations as and when you feel is necessary yeah the latter of the two some people it's a tricky thing right because if you don't change what you do some people could say it's arrogant you know what i mean some people could say it's confident i think we just say it's like proactive you know there is a lot of teams and a lot of teams that we play against um that will change the way they play to play against you i think that's the ultimate compliment you know as a coach as a program um, as a club, um, we are trying to counteract what your opponent's doing and not really sticking to a true identity of yours. We try to stick to a true identity. Now, with that being said, um, if we've seen a team, you know, that's played four before and then every once in a while they'll play three or against a, a better team, they play five. We'll try to prepare from a defensive scheme, you know, what I mean, what we need to do and the way we want to press against a three and a four in preparation. So at least you know, that you you want to prepare your team, right? So if it's rare that you see a team all season play with four and then they kick off and there's just three, you don't panic, right? But you hope that throughout the season you played a three, you played two up top or one, whatever it may be, where you feel like you prepared them for that. Um, we're pretty fortunate. We, we do in-game video as well. Um, so we can make those tweaks or show some stuff at halftime and little different things in different situations where – you know, okay, what are they doing and how are they doing it? Why are they causing us problems? Hopefully you're not down at halftime and you can make those changes. But we try to be a proactive football club where, you know, we want to we, we wanna impose our game uh, and not worry as much about the opponents. But like, like you said, the louder part is tweaking different things in our formation, you know what I mean, or the way we press or the way we build to counteract what they're doing. You know, that would be naive not to make those changes 
you know, in game, whatever it may be, it could be substitutions, right? I mean, you know, sitting a little bit deep and we're not able to scheme and get in behind. We want to play a little bit more off service. Do we have a bigger nine that can go in and, you know what I mean? And, and, and play off the of service. We'll try to tweak that for sure. Yeah, I think it's, it's a really interesting dynamic with that and the substitutions. I'm just thinking there in terms of, you know, you can profile who you're up against as well. So it might be that if they've got a very good left winger, you've gone for a more defensive right back. And then all of a sudden, actually, you're really on top and you go, you know what, it's worth the gamble putting our more attacking right back in because we, we're, we've got them under the cost a little bit, which I think is really interesting dynamic. So in terms of your work in weeks, then, if we go for what it was this season, because I appreciate before COVID seems like a lifetime ago for everyone, um, what does your work in week look like? And in terms of schemes and blocks of work, how does that look over kind of a macro and micro basis? You're talking about the football preparation? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it it's varied because of our games Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, right? So, like, in a normal week is to say we played – the NCAA um, mandates a day off a week for the kids to be students, you know what I mean, and just to get a, a reprieve, and we respect that. Um, we actually give an additional day off. So midweek, so we try to do like um, whatever our lean-in is, you know, and we felt comfortable with um, a two-day lean into game. So, you know, match day minus two is like our real focal day. And that day before we'll give off. Like, so minus three is off. So and now we can just mentally focus. And then we start worried about the opponent. So if we went, so if we played Saturday, Sunday, uh, we would train, you know what I mean? And maybe it's Monday off just to try to get, you know what I mean? We get the reserves in a little bit, recovery for the guys, if it's bike, jog, stretch, whatever it may be, ice bath, cryotherapy. I think what a lot of people don't realize in the university system, we have professional facilities, you know what I mean? And especially at the bigger ones. So we are very fortunate what we have. And then maybe it's a lift session. Monday could be off, right? And then we go Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, Thursday off, Friday, Saturday, lean into Sunday. Um, with that is, yes, is we are smaller numbers as we progress. Um, you know what I mean? And, you know, we could end training with seven be sevens with three teams, one team doing a little bit more of, you know, functional, and then we rotate. And as we go, right, we're, we're grasping bigger numbers and bigger, you know, overall philosophy in terms of our approach to the game. Um, but it does give us, we have set basically as we get that minus two, minus two, minus one, the session itself doesn't change much. It's just the tweaks that we want to do for an opponent, you know, uh, and, and as we move into that, it's a lot more 11 v 11. Um, but so say we're doing midfield third, you know what I mean? 11 v 11 and we're playing off a team, no matter what you do, high block, mid block, low block, they're going to go big on goal kicks and going to play big. We'll enter everything in the air. Right. And um, Wake Forest, our, our, our program right now, we could be the smallest club in college soccer. So scrapping and competing and, you know, winning first and seconds could be the majority of Thursday. Kids hate it. <laughs> you know what I mean? When you try to be a football club, but like, you know, in a building team that doesn't like that. But then obviously you're just trying to prepare yourself for what you're going to see. But we, we start smaller and we grow um, and with an, an additional day off for sure. So on that, so let's talk match day minus two and match day minus one. What yeah. would the, what would 
the content be on those days and what would the session types be if you're able to run through those so kind of i don't know if it is it 90 minutes is it 120 yeah we, we try to try to go like that 75 trying to be the max and if we go over the 75 it's all like individual work Right. So maybe the backs are just pinging a little bit bigger balls. Outside backs are working on service and getting around the corners. You know, central midfielders and, 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 you know, nines and tens playing off each other close range finishing for about, you know, six to 10 minutes, um, where it's almost like it, it, it's a cool down, but at the same time, you're in your functional, uh, positionals, but it's around 75 minutes. The minus one, we try to keep right around 50 to 60 minutes. You know, and that last 10 minutes is exactly what we just said, you know, getting guys in front of goal and, you know, even center backs would play a little fun game like horseshoes and the staff is involved and have a little bit of fun. You know what I mean? Uh, but really just decompress and enjoying. But when we go into that minus two, I call it a little bit more meat and potatoes where our defensive scheme, the way we want to press, the way we want to build against the press and just showing different aspects to that. Um, at the end of training, it could be gold down, you know, man up, man down, um, but little different things. So what we call it like a little zone 14 exercise, 11 v 11, but it becomes 11 versus basically eight um, where we keep two guys high in transition. OK, it's going to be a session where we know we're going to have the ball and it's just about breaking down that, you know, defense and avoiding counters. Right. So there, there's times we do like man up stuff in terms of our first team playing like 10 field players versus 11 you know when you're keeping two guys high in transition so our center backs have to be disciplined where if we turn the ball over defensive transition is important but how can we impose the game and continue to keep it in their end um but we do a that that minus two is basically the different aspects of the game and just showing different things that we feel we're going to see or we have to defend a long throwing you know what i mean like there's long throwings i mean you see it in the uk as well uh, but then minus one, it's a very – like we start passing patterns. We we call it left side, right side, where just close range and just basically you're using the left side to do a full side pattern and we go to goal and then the other side goes and we just flip-flop and we go into a midfield third, you know, 10v10, uh, eight goal game with small goals. And then, again, is okay, we're playing off goal kicks, throw-ins, bouncing, like whatever we feel the opponent's going to be. And then we end in a like a two-touch restart game where we're implementing maybe some new restarts, showing what the opponent's doing, and then a little bit of functional. That session doesn't change. The only thing that changes is the tweaks for our opponent or maybe different ways we feel we can expose an opponent, you know, in different situations. And is, I'm assuming that's just different constraints on those games in order to get the outcomes you want. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, like midfield third game, okay, you know, we have to play off the switch. You know, so the only way you can penetrate is playing off the switch because a team will play and just overbalance way too much, right? Even throw-ins, if we play in, like we played uh, Kentucky in the Sweet 16 and the way like they have their winger all within 10 yards of the thrower right on the defensive side all the way across. So key, blind switches even on if we can find our weak side outside back, you know, off the switch on throwing. So you're getting points for that and you just manipulate the game to get what outcome that you want from the football. And do you have a curriculum that you work from that you've created or is it more just around where the team is within their preparation, where the team is within their season and what you've got coming up? The curriculum is more, I would say, a style of play and an identity. And then you have to veer quickly off of that when you realize, okay, this is going to be a bigger challenge than we thought. 
Um, our major philosophy or mine is, is that we want to focus defensively first and getting pressure on the ball. Our counter pressing is basically a big part of our identity. Um, but there's some days that we have to, can, we can't move on. Well, not days, but even weeks, like as in preparation is like this, we cannot move until we get this. But my overall philosophy is the better defensively you are, the quicker we'll adapt with the ball, right? You have to adapt with the ball. So in, in terms of curriculum, as we start the season, yes, is we want to, we want to grow this area and we're just moving. Um, but sometimes we, we'll still get through it, but then we have to go back, you know, uh, and I, and that starts at the beginning, you know what I mean? In terms of this is our style of play. This is our identity. Um, this is our system of play and really trying to get the guys to buy in and have an understanding. Like if you talk to one of my guys, I feel very strongly they'll be able not just regurgitate what we want to do, but have a real understanding of what we do and why we do it. So when you're looking at the start of the season, obviously you said there you've got new groups coming in with new players. So you do need to uh, kind of let them know the style of play. You would have done that slightly during the recruitment process, but obviously yeah. now it's in depth. They're, yeah. they're in the building, etc. So how do you go around implementing that? What type of sessions do you put in place so early on? Because I'd imagine you're going to have a few go-to sessions where you go. Yeah. Oh, these uh, uh, most most of our our go-to so first off there's a lot of opportunity that we have from now until they get here so we'll have COVID has really opened up everybody's eyes like this zoom like i'm looking at you we wouldn't have done this you know what i mean a year and a half ago we would have done it on a phone or you would have recorded somehow um but so we'll have meetings throughout the summer you know and we'll have the current team and all the incoming guys and we will go over playing style. We'll go over leadership and culture more than playing style because you're not allowed to do soccer activities, but leadership, culture, identity, off the field type of stuff that I do think carries its way on the field, you know, honesty, integrity, and work rate, positioning, mentality. Um, but then as we get here, our guys here are in July for summer school. So out of our 30 players, right, 28 of them will be here from July until the first day of preseason. So basically, we rely on our older guys to start teaching some of those really key things when they're training together. We're not allowed to train them in the summer. It's strength and conditioning. It's getting fit. And it's really our older players setting that identity. And the way we start, everything is off our reactions and our counterpress. So I like when they come in and they, they play pickup at night, every night, flick the lights on. I don't care if you dribble eight guys, you know what I mean? Or you turn the ball over every time you get it, as long as their identity, is I have to have better reactions. As young players, you turn it over, oh, you get mad, but we want to win the ball back. So we use that time. But then when we come, it is very small, congested, even like Rondo's, if it's five versus two, five versus two reactions. So you lose the ball, you're flying into the grid to win it back, and then you're opening up. You know, so there's everything is predicated off reactions. We call it the Cologne game. We got it from Germany. Um, seven versus three, two small goals, tight space. Three guys come on, seven are keeping it, five passes is a point, right? But if you lose the ball, the three can go to either goal right away, right? And then then you're then three come off, three come on. You play minute bouts where they're just competing to keep it and transition. So like seven, you should have some success. You turn it over, how quickly can you win it back? You know, so everything is predicated off the possession and the reactionary in tighter spaces. And I I, I use the terminology training the brain, right? Because we have to... For young players, we have to change habits 
because there's not a lot of kids that when they turn the ball over, their first inkling is to go win it back. It's more of I get upset with myself. I want to blame somebody. You know what I mean? Or you stand still, you fix your shin guards. Um, so that we're trying to break habits early on. And how long does it take to do that? Because as you were talking there, I'm thinking, yeah, like that would take a lot of work to break some some players. It's going to yeah. be 18 years of them losing it and the reaction being, oh. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I said, if he helped me, I, I, I'm a big man of faith. But in that second, he's not going to win the ball back for you, right? Like, so you can look up and you, oh my gosh, and you can pray, but you need to find a way to get the ball back. But it, it, it's more of, uh, it. some it takes longer than others. Let's be fair. The, the ultimate thing that does it is competition. You know, and if you look at it, if you if you have a culture, right, and it's a pressing culture or it's a counter-pressing culture and it's good and it's strong and you have 11 guys on the field, and I'm counting the goalkeeper with this, and one guy turns the ball over and 10 guys are working hard and that one guy is fixing his shin guards and your culture is good, all 10 are going to say something to that player. It's not going to be me right now. Of course, I will. It's part of my responsibility. But you have to evolve and you have to adapt if you want to be on the field. I do think is some of our uh, our best leadership that we've had in the club comes from the group and the culture trying to move forward together. And, and I, it sounds awful, but I think players are alienated by the team if they're not doing what the identity of the team is. Um, and they, they have to evolve or they just put, you know, not to the side, but they move further and further down the depth chart. And changing that perception is so hard, right? I Believe me, I know changing perception is hard. And um, But that's why it starts early. And some kids get it right away. And like in life, it takes longer. And hopefully the light goes on. And so how does it work if someone challenges that culture? So if you've got an individual that's come in that either isn't playing, so all of a sudden their work rate goes down because someone's gone ahead of them, or maybe, and this is a bit of a challenge one, you haven't recruited exactly as you thought you had, and you've got an individual that actually isn't buying into this. I look at someone like Adel Tarapt, QPR is a famous one, in possession was outstanding and they knew that he would win them a game but out of possession you're basically playing with 10 men so how do you how do you or how does the group go around challenging that individual to either hopefully get them to align back into your beliefs that's a really good question and you know it's like multi there's no right answer right it's just that's impossible to answer because every young man is different or every young woman is different depending on who you coach uh, I just think trying to just continue to, to see what motivates them, right? If playing motivates them, explaining this is what you need to do to play. Um, and, and, and true relationships, I think intentional relationships is really important to me. Um, I, that's harder nowadays because I, the kids come from professional systems and it's very transactional instead of intentional. Um, and we try to do that here because yeah, I, I'm at an age where I'd like to be a big brother, not a dad you know, to these guys where they, I, I can be someone they can lean on. Um, and I'll be honest with them, you know, and I think is, is knowing what their goals are is important, right? If someone wants to be a doctor, I can challenge them differently, right? Maybe hold them higher on the academic side than the football side. Someone wants to be a pro, right? We can challenge them different ways to try to get them there. But knowing that to be a pro, you need to be on the field, right? You need to be developing. But it's a challenging question. I mean, it's it's very truthful. It's honest. It's transparent. Where you try to be, 
but I also hope that they can see the other guys that are playing, you know what I mean? If you're happy or not, and they're playing because they're doing those things. I think we're as coaches and I, I fall into this boat too. We could lose credibility if we're allowing, you know, we say, this is the culture of the program. This is the identity of the club. And we're allowing different players not to do those things because they're like their overall talent. Um, you get lured in that. I don't care who you are. You're a human being, your competitive side. I know he's not doing it, but I know he's capable of, you know, what he's capable of. And you leave him out there a little bit longer. I try not to do that as best as I can. I do. I, I you know, I fail like everybody, every human being because of the competitive side. But if you stay true to who you are and what you want to do, you know what I mean? I, I, I hope that those players come around. So either when you've come into this role, although I know obviously Wake Forest is very well established, it may be slightly different, or when you've gone into the others, how do you go about manifesting that culture with a group of players who you're either new to or not all of them are going to fit in with kind of your work, your stage? And obviously you've got four years of that and you've got to try and last yeah. long enough within that four years to yeah. be able to embed the culture in the way you want things to happen? It's not easy. And I learned the hard way too. Um, what you could do is you could facilitate a culture, but you can't force a culture on somebody. Um, and, and I did that when I was at Denver. I was like, this is what we have to, you know, and, and you can't really, no young man, young woman, in my experience, if you told you have to do something, is willing going to want to do it. I mean, I always, this it's a really bad analogy, but if you came home every day and the missus says, wash the dishes, right? You will do the dishes a lot better when you want to do the dishes. You know what I mean? Like, or instead of, can you wash the dishes? Instead of like, okay, if you wash the dishes, do you realize how much more time we can have? Like if there's a why behind it, instead of just being told to do it. So I just think education, right? Is in the whys is important. Instead of you have to do this. I always say that the turn in a program, a turn in a player is they'll do things because they have to, right? That's a start. But when you realize you're doing them because you believe it's the right thing to do and it works, that's where a culture is put in place. Is there any particular bad experience you had that flipped that switch for you? I mean, when I was at the University of Denver, you're trying to build a program. Right. And I was forcing a culture on leaders. You know, I think a a big mistake that you can have is we're not being successful because our leaders aren't good enough or we're not getting leadership from the curtain players. Well, where does that come down from? Right. And pointing fingers and leadership, I think, is a flaw. I've done it. You know, I've failed. I've had good seasons. I've had some bad ones. Um, And you try to learn from that. And I've said this is I will micromanage the group until leaders emerge. And then try to enable them to lead even more, right? And ask for more feedback and and give them more opportunities to lead. But I think the worst thing you can do is force a culture on some kids that maybe aren't ready to lead that don't have the same beliefs maybe that you have and then sit back and allow it to ferment the way you thinking the way it should be, right? But just educating your leaders, educating your players on the whys. And I think even I just had a really young team. I couldn't say we're going to press because I want to press. I want to press because why do we want to press? Why do we want to counter press? Because we're a possession team and we're going to have numbers in the attack and just try to explain the whys. Why do we play short corners? Because we only have one guy over six, one, you know what I mean? Like it's just, and it sounds so simple, right? But I think just trying to like, try to get them to understand the whys and then celebrate 
when it's done right. Right. I think sometimes we look upon the negatives all the time is celebrate when we did right. So they could say, oh, I'm not doing it because I have to. I'm doing it because it's successful. It works. And I want to. And that's a transition. And it's not easy, believe me. One thing you said right at the start of this podcast, which kind of stuck with me and I think links into this now is how being a bench player and being Uh a sub and stuff you're you're proud of because it gave you more empathy. How do you think that manifests itself kind of on a day-to-day basis in the interactions you have with the group? I think probably sometimes better than others. Let's be fair. I, I definitely, I'm empathetic where a kid is struggling and working hard and maybe just not finding his way on the field, right? And I think I worked hard. Um, my expectations will never change, you know, for a reserve or a starter, whatever it may be. Our expectations here are to be the very best. And that's external expectations we have from the country, from our my administration to the people that, you know, pay the bills. I think is that's never going to change no matter how understanding I am of someone's role. The issue is, is trying to explain to young men that what you do on a daily basis does impact the success of the group, even if you're not playing right by, you know, if, 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 if we're doing things and we're checking the boxes correctly and we can focus on football instead of babysitting or focus on football instead of, you know what I mean, trying to play catch up all the time and you chase your tail, that helps me be a better coach. It helps our staff be more focused on the football. You got to realize as a college coach, we deal with a lot more than just football, right? We deal with academics. We deal with social stuff. Um, so how can we focus on football? And these kids just understanding that the way they train, the way they perform, even if they're not playing, has a huge impact on our results. You know, and, and I, I, use the, I use the example all the time is I didn't play in the national championship game when I was a player and we won a national championship in 1995. And I'd fool around like I won that because I worked my butt off. I made the people in front of me better. And I was a goalkeeper and I made it hard. Well, I thought I made it hard. They probably probably don't think so. But I made it hard for them to score. Right. I mean, I was leading the second team and trying to communicate to make it difficult to try to prepare our team to be successful Um, and trying to use, again, storytelling, you know, is is a benefit of that as well. I uh, a good example of that is this spring season. We had four kids come in in January. Now, normally you come in in January in a college. They graduated early. They come in January. They can play in our spring games, which are non-counting. And it gives great experience for these kids. The NCAA made a rule after they committed to come in January because of the two season model, they weren't going to be allowed to play in the matches, right? Those four guys trained for four months with no reward at the end. Uh, And I could not commend them enough for the work they put in this spring, because there is no chance, right? That we make it as far as we do without them at training every day. The difference of four field players in training every day is huge when you don't have a big roster, you know. So I, the, the the buy-in and them understanding that they're not only helping themselves development-wise, but they're helping the team. Um, that's not always easy for people to see. It's not easy for parents to see either, because parents come to a stadium on a Saturday and their son doesn't play, right? Uh, they don't understand the impact that their son's having on the program each and every day, just by their work rate both on and off the field to help us win. So just trying to explain that. Do you think that's particularly the case with the younger players that come in? Obviously, if they come in 
um, you know, his juniors, etc. Or, or sorry, his juniors, right? Freshmen come freshmen. in as freshmen. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. if yeah. they come in as freshmen, they might not see a lot of actual game time because they're younger in a group. But actually, they're developing skills at that period. They're also developing the group as a whole. Do you yeah. think that's something quite common for those kind of newer intake? Uh, 100%. You're going to have a wide range of freshmen, freshmen that maybe can make an immediate impact, some that like are reserves and like, you know, play roles, and then some that don't play at all. Again, each program has their own story. All right. But if we look at all the guys that have been successful moving forward in recent years, some of them didn't play at all their freshman year. You know, the number five, you know, number five or number six draft pick in the MLS Super Draft this year, Michael the Shields, redshirted his first year, didn't play in a game, was a sub his second year. Right. Bruno Lapa uh, plays in the USL. He's two time first team All-American here at Wake Forest. Right. He started two years, his junior and senior year. Both of them was a first time, you know, first team All-American. Like you'd be like, well, you should have played him earlier. He wasn't ready to fill that role. But buying into the process, buying into the development, the bigger picture is the reason these guys had success. And the list goes on and on. That's not I mean, I can continue to go. But but storytelling and understanding that. You have to trust the process. And I know that's hard for a competitive young man. Do you think that comes back to your emphasis on being competitive, though? Because if you're encouraging people to be competitive, so say, for example, really easy one. Um, if you're doing functional practice with a mm -hmm. fullback against a wide player yep. and you're encouraging that competitive nature in terms of, you know, making sure you win or um getting out aggressively all that type of stuff yep. you're making each other better and you know you're defensively you're making the attacker have to attack better to get past you and yep. attacking wise by being competitive you're making the defender better for when he plays against another good winger on a game day do you think your emphasis on competition then leads itself kind of within this narrative of you're all improving if you're all competing against one another every day Oh, 100 percent. Our goal in our recruiting and the way we build our team is we want to have two really competent players in every position to 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 form that, comp, you know what I mean? That competitiveness and that competition positionally is where you have, you know, some of the best wingers, you know, running at backs and the backs could be on the second team. But those second team guys are getting better because of the attacking players going at them and vice versa, knowing that an injury comes in and someone else can fill that void is every day in training. You've played a a player capable or more capable than the one that you're playing against. Um, and I do think is the one thing I always say about development in terms of uh, it's an easy conversation, but it's not as easy as one would think is if you came in my office and you're not playing that much at the end of the season, I could say, did you get better this, this fall or this spring? And they say, yes, they can't say yes, but, you're not allowed to say but, right? Because the answer really was, are you getting better? Are you developing in the system? Yes, but I no. Yes is the answer because you came here because you wanted to get better. And as long as after each semester you can say that, right, they'll get on the field, right, at some some, some point, right? And they'll help us in a way. When that stops, that, then we have some issues, right? It could be the player. It could be me. It could be the system, whatever it may be. But you can't say but. Because that's why they're here. There's no fast forward button. You know what I mean? Like, I got better, but I wanted to get more better. You know what I mean? Like, I, that's not even good English. But you know what I mean? I, I needed to get, you know, better quicker. There's no fast forward button. And then that's where you can start saying, well, 
your trajectory is a lot better than maybe so-and-so or where we expect you to be, but you can't say yes, but right. But we're all competitive. We want to press the fast forward button. And I suppose that's where you, you know, you're selling your programs saying you're coming here to develop Yeah. and development is goes at different stages for different people at different times. But as long as you're developing, then that is why you agreed to come here. That's why we're recruiting you because we want to make you better. I said it was one of the three keys when you said when we were recruiting is, you know, they want to develop as players and as people. And if they're doing that, I feel as like I'm, I'm not me, but the staff and the program and the university are following through on what they told you that we wanted to do. You know, now that winning championships is not easy. Only one team is really happy at the end of the year. Right. I mean, unless it's the EPL. I mean, if I come in the top four and I feel really good about, you know, going into Champions League. Yeah, there's something else to play for in college soccer. There's really not. Right. It's not you come in the top four, you know, you, you're not in a different league or you're making more money. It's it's there's one happy team at this level every year. Um, so I can't guarantee that. But I can guarantee if you bought in. Right. And you, you stick to the principles and the values of the club. Right. You're going to get better both on and off the field. And, and that that's I mean, I don't know if you can see it like development is a big word behind me. Um, and it's not just talk. It's something that we take great pride in. So when you're looking at the, the players that have gone on to have success and play in the MLS, et cetera, and, you know, you guys have produced a lot of players that have been fortunate enough to go and do, do that. Is there anything in particular that stands out to you as to why they've progressed to where they have or any common threads? Or you look at them as a group and go, yeah, this is something they all possess. This is the, how they make that jump into that environment. Yeah, and, and there's an occasional one that talent did it a little bit more, but their professionalism and their work rate, and I know that's like sounds coaching cliche, is like the willingness, not even the willingness where it's asked of them, but their want to constantly get better. You know, it, it's extra lifts, staying after, getting in early, on days off, they're out there, where you almost have to manage them and say, guys, calm down, where they're guys that check the boxes. Um, I always say we have a, a society, especially nowadays with instant, instant success and wanting to press the fast forward button. If you give a player five things, five boxes to check, right, about what it's going to take to be a pro or get to the next level, I mean, even be a doctor, right, most of those guys check the boxes, right? And they probably made a sixth one with just extra stuff. Um, and a lot of kids now, you give them five boxes to check, they'll do three of them but they want the same success and the same rewards as the guys that check five. Then there's the real naive ones that only do one or two and they want the success or they'll check the five boxes for a week. I did it. They don't see the success. So then they'll stop checking the boxes. These kids that have been successful for a majority and for long periods of time have done things the right way. And it's a matter of consistency. You know what I mean? You cannot be, successful you know on off the field if you don't find levels of consistency and I think those players brought it each and every day I mean Ian Harks is an unbelievable example right plays in the Scottish Premiership now um with Dundee and and for me is when he was injured or out of training our training was down because he just made everybody around him better at everything he did you know and the presence that he had on and off the field was tremendous um Isaiah Parente is a homegrown kid He's playing with Columbus crew right now. There's not one person in this club that I ever came in contact with Isaiah that would ever question from his actions how bad he wanted to be a professional footballer, ever. 
right? And he did an unbelievable job in the classroom as well. The way he led himself, you know what I mean? You knew he was destined for success. Is there any particular examples or any particular times that stand out to you where you were like, that's above and beyond what I'd expect or that's above and beyond what normal kids of that age would do? Normal kids at that age, not what I would expect, I would say, is we played a game, I don't know how many years ago, it was a couple seasons with COVID, it feels like it was 12 years ago, um, but we played a really hard-fought game, we beat Clemson in overtime, right, so in college soccer we have overtimes, golden goal, whatever your sudden death, whatever you want to call it, and Clemson are one of our biggest rivals, right, very, very good program, very well coached, and we won an overtime, it was a Saturday night, Right. So you're getting in a little bit later and Sunday guys had regen session, you know, where guys that need treatment, ice baths, cryo. And I went to the training room and half the team wasn't in the training. Now I'm first thing I'm upset. These guys say they want to win and not taking care of their bodies. So I go over and see my strength coach and I have probably eight of the 11 starters that played big minutes. were all in getting an extra lift prior to going in for an ice bath. And I was like, this is a special group. And out of those guys, Isaiah Parente was there, Joey, Joey Desart, uh, Bruno Lapa, uh, Machocho, Andrew Pannenberg, and the list goes on. All of those guys are making a living playing professional football right now. You know, so it, it is that's you see these turning points and you just hope that young guys, they start bringing the young guys along. And, and they see the whys and what it takes to be in play at that level. And I know that's like a small thing, but. That's not normal. Sunday in college, what do you want to do? You sleep. You don't get up early and go for a lift. You know, um, you know, we just played a long game. It's my day off. So it just shows you, you know, the guys just want to do a little bit more all the time. I guess if you have, you know, by the sounds of it, they're probably your best players at the time as well. If you have your best players doing that, then what's the excuses of his backup or what's the excuses of, number six, seven, and eight not to be because the number one player in the team is, so the rest of them should be as well. And you want that just to continue, right? And and I think a lot of people harp upon the word culture all the time, and culture isn't what happened last season, you know, because every season's new. Every day is new. It's the what you think, how you act, what you do, how you lead um, to continue the culture. You just can't, well, last year we were good because of, no, it's what we're doing each and every day. And I think that's the scary part in a college system where your team changes all the time, right? And you can't rely on the culture you had last year. It does help, but it's what you do to continue it. Um, and, and that's why you're always on high alert, making sure that things are moving in the right direction and not the wrong direction. And obviously we, we mentioned, well, we spoke briefly uh, off air beforehand and you said there'd been a bit of a transition for you guys with a number of players going uh, into the draft and whatnot. And, Obviously, you've had to play some younger players um, during the tournament this year. So for you guys moving forward and your next steps, what do you envision that being? What what do you hope kind of next year brings for you as a, as a group? Well, we hope success. I think if if we had a completely different 11 or the same 11, you know, our goals and ambitions aren't going to change, right? We want to compete for a national championship. We want to try to compete to win an ACC championship. Uh, that's our conference here. Um and that's not going to change, you know, and I think is um, I always tell the guys I'm encouraged each and every day when I come to work, I see a national championship trophy. I see an ACC championship trophy as we walk into the office, 
So knowing that your program is capable of doing it um, makes it that much more exciting. You know what I mean? It's achievable. You know, there's a lot of programs that go in, you know, into the office every day and their end goal is to win a championship, but it can they, you know what I mean? Um, you know, look at the EPL. There's a lot of people that start that season day one, match day one. We want to win a league or we want to come in the top four. Can they? You know, uh, I don't know. Obviously, there's a lot more parity than there has been before in professional football, but um, it just makes it harder, right? And you can have the Cinderella every once in a while, but, you know, the, those top teams are going to start moving to the top. So no matter who we have um, or what we bring back or who we have bring, coming in, our ultimate goal is to win. And we want to win doing it the right way. I know that sounds petty, but we want to try to do it playing our brand as stubborn as it may be. Uh, and we want we want guys to reach their goals and ambitions at the end of each season as well, you know, as they graduate and they move on and do everything we can to prepare them. Perfect. So last question for me, um, and it might be a tricky one, but who's the best player or coach you've worked with or against and why? Against or why? I we're in college. We're constantly recruiting. You can't you can't give another coach coach the nod. I could tell you that. Um, but th- there's a lot of good coaches. I, to be honest with you, I humble myself. I have to pinch myself every time we have an ACC head coaches meeting because I feel as if I work in the best soccer conference with the best coaches in the country day in and day out and compete against them. So um, that's that's an unfair question. I, it, it in terms of players, I get asked that a lot and. The, the the everybody would say, well, you have to say Jack Harrison because what he's doing in the premiership right now. I mean, Jack played here at Wake Forest for a short period of time for his ability, but it was, you know what I mean? You know, we had a great freshman year and then everybody came running and looking for him. Um, and obviously in terms of the career he's having, there's no one that can, you know what I mean? You can't compare that. He scored once and, you know, uh, for Leeds this weekend and had two assists. So that, I, I, the player part though, I think, just talent wise, Jack is, you know what I mean? He's at a different level, of course. I think for what he did for the program, there's so many people that I can mention, but I mentioned them earlier, Ian Harks. I had Ian for two years. Um, and to go through a coaching change is extremely difficult, right? In college soccer, you come to a university or the program for the coach, for the staff. Um, at the end of your sophomore year, going into your junior year to have a completely different coach and staff, that's not easy. Right. And when you're a talented player and have a strong opinion about the way the game should be played and the way the game is played, which Ian does. Um, and I have great respect for him, for him just grinning and bearing and you know what I mean, and adapting and adjusting and playing, giving him some freedom as a player, I think was helpful for Ian. Uh, for what he did for me and for this program. Um, you know, he ends up winning the national player of the year, the Herman Trophy. Um, led us to led us to a final four, an ACC championship, and a, and a national championship game. Um, that that that's a player that I'll never forget for what he did and just being himself and being a true professional day in and day out. Listen, Bobby, really appreciate you giving up a bit of time to talk through your program and, and what you guys are doing out there. It sounds like a really great culture and a really good university. So uh, really appreciate that, and hopefully I can catch up with you again soon. Hey, thank you so much for having me.
Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.